Investors Chronicle. Welcome to the Companies and Markets show. It's Thursday, the 22nd of June, as we record. That means summer is officially here. And to mark the occasion, we are kicking things off today by talking about cycling, specifically Halfords, albeit its business is quite different nowadays, too. Of course, the arrival of the summer months is no barrier to people being glued to their phones. Our cover story this week is an in-depth look at US tech giant Meta, and we'll be asking whether the company's recent rebound can continue. And finally, we look at Halma, the FTSE 100 safety equipment maker's full-year results out the other day. It raised its dividend for the 44th year in a row, but there's plenty of other things to get our teeth into there as well. Joining me to discuss all this are over the line, Julian Hoffman. Hello, Dan. And in the studio, Mark Robinson. Hi, Mark. Hi there, Dan. Gemma Slingo. Hi, Gemma. Hi, Dan. And Arthur Sants. Hi, Arthur. Hey, Dan. We begin with Halfords then. Results for the year to the 31st of March were out this week. Mark, I think you're going to kick us off. Yes. Uh, figures uh, suffered a bit from a cycling slump last year, but overall a lot of uh, positives yeah i mean i was tempted to recall well it sort of paraphrase uh, george orwell with um, four wheels good two wheels bad but uh, as it turns out they've uh, had a little bit of trouble in uh, both their business arms as well and yet for the full year the management seems uh, fairly confident and of achieving what is their analyst consensus at the moment but in truth, the stock itself has been on something of a roller coaster ride since the COVID period as well. The reasons during lockdown were easy enough to tell. But even if you look over the last six months, for instance, there's a hell of a lot of volatility with the stock as well, which makes the, the valuation uh, argument. The cy- cycling was one of the main problems with volumes down by about 25% on pre-pandemic levels. Um, and I think, as you point out, that it's 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 not uh, recession resistant on that basis, because when you look at buying a, a bicycle now, it certainly went under the fall under the the, the banner of discretionary spending. Uh, interestingly enough, though, but their their tire volumes as well, they also struggled during the period, and I would imagine that uh, that wouldn't. Uh, fall under the matter of discretionary spending as well, uh, given that, uh, you know, if your tyres are running out, there's nothing much you can do other than buy some new tyres. You know, Chris said that uh, the, the bulk of the, the business now comes from the motoring section, um, uh, not least garages as well. So there, there's one point when I was looking at the results as well, given that I've never really covered them before, but Chris Ackers wrote them up is that looking ahead in terms of their auto parts uh, business, as we transition over to electric vehicles, a process that might be slower than many people uh, expect at the moment, it's worth remembering that EVs, they use significantly fewer parts than conventional automobiles. So you can understand why uh, management have taken some of the decisions they have and why the, the business is moving in that direction. But I think it's really difficult to really sort of come up with any sort of clear idea of uh, future trading volumes. Mm. That, uh, you know, there's a lot of things to pick up there. As you and say, and as Chris wrote, the, the business is is largely uh, automotive nowadays, despite what we perhaps think of when we think of how it's i.e. cycling. And yeah, it was that, that fall was quite interesting to me just because it's not a fall based on, you know, the pandemic surge. It's, it's that 20% volume 
uh, drop is is pre-pandemic. So you know, even if you account for uh, the drop-off in cycling that we've seen as people, you know, got on their bikes when there wasn't much else to do, and have now, you know, maybe doing other things. There's still that drop due to, uh, you know, cost of living pressures, I suppose, things like that. So again, it does make sense they're moving away for that reason to a more resilient side of the business, which is garages, mechanics, servicing, cars, that kind of thing. I, I haven't had a bicycle since I was 17 years of age, so I'm I'm probably not. Uh, you know, qualified to, to comment on this that much. But I, looking at their range, it's changed appreciably as well because I knew of the fact with uh, Halfords, you used to be, be able to go in there and buy uh, cheaper, lower-quality bikes. But now it's not unusual to see £12,000 bikes up for sale as well, which may, again, sort of count against sales you know, given the you know inflationary struggles that everyone's having at the moment and the cost-of-living crisis. Do you... Uh... Do you think you'd put the uh, receive wisdom to the test if you were to get on a bike again now? Do you think you could ride it? Uh, well, yeah. Th- I've, actually, the last time I did ride a bike, that was when I was in the uh, sort of uh, West Sussex countryside where I managed to ride into a hedgerow with my shirt off and came out covered in green fly. But that's a, that's a different oh, wow. story altogether. A, a different podcast, yeah. Yes. Uh, we'll get on to the garages side in a minute, but yeah, I can see that's attracted your uh, interest or your comment, Julian. What, what do you think about Halfords more than Mark's uh, cycling abilities? Oh, yeah, Halfords is... It's, uh... It, it, it has the last man standing appeal, doesn't it? Which uh, does count for something now in the retail business. Uh, it, they're they kind of where do you go to go and get a bulb for your car that you know you can guarantee that you'll find it. So in that that has a certain um, certain resilience. The interesting thing I thought that came across in the results was that the, there is a split emerging, isn't there, between the electric vehicle and the just sort of legacy, as you might call it fossil fuel vehicles and that the the take up at the moment isn't fast enough to justify sort of the expense that the garages are going to in in sort of switching over is that that, uh, there's a lot of mechanics standing around waiting for EV vehicles whereas if you try and book your car into a garage at the moment it's a three week wait minimum before it's like trying to see a GP Mm. Uh, so there is that there is I think that's an interesting split I mean from an investment point of view it's very hard to to tell whether the, the future is is rosy from this point from from this point onwards. I mean, certainly by most of the ratios, the, the shares are very reasonably priced. I mean, they're definitely below the below the peg thresholds. I, I just struggle with the, a business that has so many legacy items to it. You know that uh, they have a lot of retail estate. I mean, we don't know what's going to happen to fixed retail assets in the future. I mean, are they going to continue with that? Um, yeah, you know, our garage is going to exist in um, the same volume as they do at the moment. I mean, that's another question that uh, sort of goes unanswered in these results. But yeah, it's a business that has shown resilience. You, you've got to give them their due for that. The, uh, the mechanics point is uh, pertinent, I think, and they mentioned that as well. Obviously, costs have been going up and labour costs, and, the, and this is one area uh, where Gemma actually wrote about staff shortages. And mechanics is an area, or traditional mechanics, as you say, Julian, is an area where there have been a lot of shortages, and that is presumably adding to the costs on that side. Conversely, there is a there is a surplus of uh, EV mechanics at the moment, so quite polarised in that regard. I mean, a lot of colleges have stopped offering normal mechanic courses. Now you can only do... Uh, EV mechanic courses, and uh, that must be contributing to it. But 
yeah, we we don't have enough cars yet to justify the, the workforce on that side of the on that side of the business. But I mean, in five years' time, that might change considerably. Yeah. Mm. Uh, Dan, I think one of the points, uh, the research points that uh, you alluded to earlier on is the fact that it's a, a fairly fragmented market uh, still at this stage. Yeah. But one of the problems uh, is unit profitability uh, margins uh, are, are pretty tight within that sector. And I'm not sure that uh, you know, you're going to be helped along just through consolidation there. I don't think it's going to consolidate quite as quickly as some analysts uh, believe there. Mm. And they have made they have made some acquisitions to that end. Obviously, you know, hoping to take a big share of the market, being the, the national player in you know auto services. I think as well, one thing they they are pinning some hopes on is their their technology, their their data systems in these garages, where you know typically a lot of garages will still use pen and paper, obviously, to book in orders, things like that. They have a, a booking management system and it does many other things as well, as far as I understand, which, which supposedly can can drive some efficiencies there too. So perhaps that's one way to to boost that margin as well over time. But you're right, it is lower margin business than certainly than than, uh, than bikes. The, the, the name escapes me as well, but uh, many of our listeners will remember there used to be a standardised um, um, motor parts journal. So whenever you went into one of these stores there, you, you could order off and, and standardised prices as well. Um, but that's going back many years now. You know, perhaps perhaps they're they're trying to reinstitute that type of dynamic in the market. To, who who can say? Yeah. Well, they did have a capital markets day a couple of months ago as well, and some fairly some fairly bold targets uh, announced there too. So clearly, management is confident, as you would expect and, and hope, really, that you know they they can get a leg up from this this automotive strategy. And again, based on the results, you know, I think shares were up five percent yesterday. They're up six, seven percent today with the day after the um, results, which is a, uh, you don't always see that kind of continued bounce. But yeah, one to keep an eye on as ever as that shift in strategy starts to or continues to play out. Uh, the, the one point as well, because we, we, we spoke earlier on about the fact that, you know, dis- discretionary uh, spending levels are under pressure mm. as are household budgets. But it's interesting when you look at um, the, the, the shock rise that we had in the core inflation rate the other day, um, an economist at HSBC has uh, come out and, and said that uh, you know it represents the fact that demand for um, package holidays, computer games, and music events has, is starting to pick up appreciably. Uh, at the same time, food costs have fallen a bit. So I mean, you, you've got to look at those uh, th- those figures in context. Really, perhaps consumer discretionary demand is a bit stronger than we we anticipated. Mm. Yeah, leisure recreation demand has been has been uh, stronger than many people thought, hasn't it? In a number yeah. of areas, you know, certainly holidays. Uh, we've spoken about the likes of Hollywood Bowl before. Next had a um, trading update this week, didn't they? As well, where they said actually they'd seen quite a big pickup. Yeah, uh, albeit they think that's going to be quite short term based on you know big salary rises coming through in April. But but that is definitely you know the resilience of the consumer is a uh, something to to bear in mind as well, notwithstanding. Uh, you know, the latest uh, spate of potential bad news coming with uh, interest rate rises, which are happening as we record. So I won't go into too much detail there on what the Bank of England has done, because I don't know. Anyway, let's turn to our cover story this week, which is on Meta, uh, the US tech giant, formerly known as Facebook, of course. And if Halford shares have been on a roller coaster ride over the past couple of years, the Metas certainly have over the past 18 months. Obviously, there was that huge slump last year, more so than most technology stocks, you know, obviously it focused on its metaverse interests, 
And a lot of people didn't really like that capital spending involved with that, given the billions and billions involved. Over the last six, nine months, though, there's been a really sharp rebound for a number of reasons, Arthur, uh, that we'll get into shortly, not least of which is AI. But it's not necessarily all about investors now ignore, or even meta ignoring the metaverse and moving to AI. There's more to it than that. Yeah, so I guess back to 2022, which is when I think share price came way down. It was sort of a combination of a few reasons. There was interest rates were going up, which was hitting all tech stocks. But Meta had some specific issues. One was the metaverse spending, the Reality Lab division, losing billions a year um, investing in virtual reality headsets, which investors didn't love, but they kind of put up with it because the rest of the business was doing well. But then in 2022, for the first time, month on month, Facebook user growth um, slipped. Um, and on top of that, Apple was bringing in these privacy rules, which meant that people could opt out of having their internet usage tracked. So the way Meta used to advertise was that you looked at a shoe on a website and then you go onto Instagram or Facebook and that shoe appears in front of you. And that's how they targeted advertising and obviously better targeted ads, better returns on advertising spending means they can charge more for that advertising space. And they said that these Apple privacy laws were going to create a 10 billion headwind, which people didn't love. And then on top of that, the sort of general advertising market was also slowing because the world was going into a recession and advertising is often the first bit of spending that's cut. So there was, and then on top of that, there was TikTok as well, which was emerging, um, which is obviously was growing really, really quickly and had this new short form video format. People were spending more time on TikTok and on the earnings calls in 2022, TikTok was mentioned often by by Meta. So there was a fear that TikTok was going to start taking taking their users as well. So there was all these sort of scenarios were converging on on Meta and the share price went down a ton. But in the last six months, basically sort of what I've heard from fund managers is a lot of their sort of worst case scenarios are gone now for a few reasons. So although these threats still exist and it's still going to cause some headwinds to the business, a lot of the worst case issues people don't think are going to play out. Yeah, there's there's several sort of prongs to this, aren't there? And several things they've they've done to, to head off some of these threats. Yeah, so some of it I think is... It, they've made good strategic decisions. So with the privacy rules, um, they still exist, so you can still opt out of getting tracked. But Meta's response to this was to invest heavily in AI. Part of this is through capital expenditure. Their capital expenditures have more than doubled in the last two years. They're buying loads of GPUs, which are the parallel computing chips I've mentioned a few times in this podcast now and written about, but it enables you to, it enables you to do a lot of heavy processing. So they can now spot better trends in the way that their their customers or users behave um, and then can target advertising at them better. And that's they obviously have billions of users and there's over 3 billion across all of their apps, Instagram, WhatsApp, and Facebook. Um, loads of data on them and the way they interact. And before, they just weren't really using that data to its max because they didn't need to because Apple was tracking and that was working perfectly well. So they didn't need to spend all that money on optimizing that data but now they realize they had to so they've invested loads in um, AI which has helped them increase advertising returns again and actually somewhat ironically means that 
because they're huge, they have all these servers and they have all this data, they're in a way better position than a lot of companies now that um, these Apple privacy rules have come in. Because if you're like a small website, you could still benefit from advertising spending because the Apple privacy rules meant that, that you could still advertise pretty well on your website. But if you don't have that much data and don't have that much AI capability, your ability to advertise effectively is is kind of gone. So um, I think in the first quarter, Meta's advertising of this year, Meta's advertising revenue went up 4%, which was much faster than the wider market. And even someone like Snapchat, which is a pretty massive company, but just doesn't have the capability of Meta in the scale, their advertising revenue was, was down a lot. So there's a sense that actually Meta is now taking market share from other advertisers because they have this massive scale and like AI capabilities. So somewhat, I guess, ironically, Apple's privacy rules have kind of gone the other way. And now a lot of investors are seeing it as a bull case for Meta rather than a a bear case, which is, um, I guess, credit to what Meta's done in terms of ramping up their AI capabilities and improving their advertising product. And just on that note, you know, the you know, the AI capabilities and the spend needed there. Uh, obviously, a lot of this spend last year, were, or all this spend was, at least in the, you know, a consensus view, or the mainstream view was seen as, you know, they're throwing all this money at the metaverse. And now it's the case, it seems that, you know, actually some of this money has gone to AI. But is it is it really that ultimately the spending needed to lay the groundwork for both of those things is effectively the same? So, you know, all, that billion, all those billions they were supposedly spending on the metaverse last year, some of that was actually preparing the ground for AI as well, given they just need to to do both these things. They need to build up, you know, data center, server power, things like that. Partly, there is some, obviously, which is going, there is some R&D, which is like specifically around like LED screens and things you need to create a headset, that Quest headset. Sure. Um, but, and that will be, that will be a lot. And <laughs> I don't think I've talked to anyone who's really excited about them spending loads and loads of money and the problem with headsets is like getting um, enough battery life, and there's just specific stuff around like heating and not wanting to have a really hot. There's loads of like really specific bits of physics around making a good headset that you can wear for hours, um, which will be. I think it's up. important, yeah, not to have a not to have a hot headset. That sounds quite important. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but the thing that's actually interesting with the spending on the headsets is Apple's come out with its Vision Pro, which was last week, two weeks ago. I lose track, but people generally said that was way way better than meta's headset obviously it costs seven times more but the interesting thing was it seems like the amount of r&d that apple apple's had to spend to produce this headset although they don't split it out in their figures hasn't gone up loads so it's, the reason why that is is because actually loads of the components that are used in the headset are already used in other apple products like a lot of the chips they use in it come from like the macbook so th- because they have a history of making hardware products that, like each extra dollar of R&D spend at Apple gets them way closer to making a great headset. Whereas Meta was coming from, they bought Oculus 2014 for 2 billion, but were basically coming from so far behind. So I don't really know about the R&D spend on Reality Labs. As a case, well, if you've already come this far and each extra dollar actually sort of like might be more beneficial than the first dollar. The first dollar is the least useful when you're trying to come at a whole new They've never made any consumer hardware products before. Zuckerberg's decided that this is the future of computing. Do you back out of it or do you actually say, oh, we've already invested this much. We kind of understand infinitely more about how to make a good bit of hardware than we did before. Should we keep trying? And honestly, in the in the cover, it's 
most people think, oh, this is going to be a waste of money. But And I guess we're going to get onto this, but he's become a bit more, it seems like he's become a bit more shrewd about where he spends money because definitely in the low interest rate period, he was throwing cash at everything from the metaverse to thousands of extra employees, which investors didn't love either. Yeah. And even and even last year, but then yeah, there there are two things here. I suppose one is the the job cuts, which I mean maybe we can, it can suffice to say that they have been quite they've been more severe than most tech companies. Which from an investor point of view, they've seen it that as him regaining control of some of that spending, to put it to put it bluntly. Uh, but the other thing is on the metaverse. You know, whatever you think about that, and however long away that is from being a reality, if it ever emerges is that the other side of the business the, the kind of improvements they made the advertising side has effectively bought time for that to play out insofar as even with all this spending and this sort of leads into valuation which will also come on to but even with all that spending you know certainly revenue growth but even cash flow growth is still looking like it'd be fairly decent for the next couple of years yeah so he's trying to optimize the profitability in the rest of the business so and that means that they've cut back loads on operational expenditure. So it was like 10,000 cuts last year, and they've announced 10,000 more cuts. Um, so 20,000 people are leaving Meta. But in the context, they have just over 80,000, so it's like 25% of their workforce. But they in 2017, they only had 25,000 employees. So it's more than tripled in that time, which is which is mad. And their operating margin came down from nearly 50% to I guess, just below 30% last year, although it's now expected to come up again this year. So they became significantly less less profitable, but it means that also there's room to massively increase your profitability if you then cut out a lot of those costs. So if they have a historical margin up in the 40% and so they're down at below 30 at the moment, you'd hope that they could get back up towards that sort of 40% mark. And the analyst forecasts are for revenue to grow at roughly 10% year on year, I think 8% next year, which, I don't know, it seems a bit... It, I think you'd have to assume for that growth to come that they'll be taking digital advertising market share from elsewhere because I was actually looking before I came in, digital advertising now makes up around 70% of all advertising because Meta's massive growth in like 2013, 2014 came from the fact that so much spending was shifting to digital ad spending. And especially when the iPhone came out, people thought it was going to be a big threat to Meta, but they create, they bought Instagram, bought WhatsApp, and also redeveloped their app and made it um, a really good product to advertise on on the phone. People always thought of it as a web app when they made the, um, a, a, a website and they made an app for the phone. And then suddenly, once everyone had an iPhone in their hand, digital ad spend like, went through the roof. So Meta was growing way faster than the wider advertising market. But now digital ads are kind of really mature. Like, you know, the digital ad market's not going to grow loads. It's probably going to grow roughly around the same rate as the economy, global economy. People don't gen they generally spend a fixed amount on on advertising so eight percent you would have to think because you're not going to think the global economy is not going to grow that fast so you have to assume they'll be taking market share which given what i said earlier about their ai capabilities seems plausible ish like eight percent and if that is the case then onto the valuation point to me at least it looks like good value it's currently trading on forward price to earnings ratio which is the same as the s p 500 which you would expect to grow on average about like similar to the economy a bit faster but if Meta is growing at 10 percent, that's definitely gonna be faster than the wider s&p 500 and if it's getting up to a 40 percent operating margin with its efficiency push and its job cuts 40 percent operating margin is exceptional like it's way higher than 
what most US businesses will be on. So in that context, you've got to think that the share price has still got further to go. And and in TikTok, the US government's kind of turned on TikTok, which is probably also a good thing for Meta. And Facebook's already banned in China. So there can't be any, the Chinese can't be like, oh, you've banned TikTok, we're going to ban Facebook because they've already banned Facebook. So there's sort of, there's no political risk in that way for them. I mean, yeah, I suppose it's a question now, isn't it, of, of how much the share price is up with events and, and how much they can continue to to surprise in future, you know, given shares have trebled, I think, pretty much from the lows. But as as we talk about in the piece, you know, they are still throwing off a lot of uh, free cash. Growth is also very strong, even given the levels of, you know, cash they've already built up over the years. We do go in in the piece into a lot more detail on some of the initiatives they're, they're using in advertising. We look at that free cash flow position and we also talk a little bit about things you know which we haven't spoken here about you know simple things like reels which is you know it's kind of tiktok competitor that has performed relatively well from what they understand of instagram users uh in terms of attracting their attention so there is a lot in there do take a look at that as our cover story this week if you see a copy of the magazine but for now we are going to shift seamlessly to an entirely different kind of company halma the FTSE 100 equipment maker now, this is a company which is not so volatile. It has a, or certainly has a very strong track record in terms of dividend growth, profit growth, notwithstanding, you know, some pandemic hiccups as we become accustomed to with most companies. Uh, anyway, its full year figures were out last week, Gemma. There's a bit of profit taking, perhaps a bit of uh, concern from the market, but overall the outlook is still set relatively fair. Is that fair to say? I reckon so. I mean, Halma is one of those companies really that, lots of people have never heard of, but is just impressively, I don't know, robust across a huge number of years. So as you mentioned, it reported its 44th dividend hike um, this month, and profits have been rising for 20 years now um, on an adjusted basis. It's probably useful just to circle back to actually think about what it does, because as you say, it's a, a safety equipment company, but it's basically made up of loads of these small and medium-sized companies that it acquires over time and operates across three markets, so safety, healthcare and the environment. And one of the really nice things about it is that the equipment it makes, some of which is quite quite niche and a little bit weird, but it's not discretionary, really. The companies that buy it do need it. So it helps keep keep demand fairly solid, despite all the all the volatility that we've seen. And the, the order book certainly seems to reflect that, you know, it looks fairly strong. And therefore, you know, organic growth predictions, I think, five or 6% this year compared with 10 last year, but still still pretty good. Yeah, I mean, it was a bit low on detail, I thought the report in terms of what size the order book actually was, but they mentioned that it was strong and that order intake is ahead of the same period last year. Um, and in the results themselves, there were signs that momentum was building. So organic re- revenue growth picked up over the course of the year, as did um, profits. So it seems at least that the direction of travel is, is good. The sort of sales growth split over the last year, you know, 10% figure or, or something like that. But how does that divide between price rises and volume growth? Because obviously these are the two sides of the coin at the moment, given inflationary pressures, how much has it been able to to grow volumes in this difficult environment? So actually, it looks like it's growing volumes pretty well because management estimated that price increases accounted for about four percentage points of revenue growth, and that's against a total figure of 21%. So it seems like they are still flogging a lot of their equipment. Um, it's worth noting that currency translation also 
helped sort of drive sales a little bit. Um, so it's not all volume, but it seems demand is is still strong, particularly in the healthcare side of the business. Yeah, I think yeah that 10% growth was constant currency. So as you say, about 20% with the uh, currency effects in there. I mean, that, that 4% is quite interesting. You know, it's relatively low given <laughs> the level of inflation in most things we're seeing. But given margins were relatively stable, that doesn't suggest they've been uh, unable to pass on prices, just that they've been a little bit immune to, to some of that, perhaps. That said, there were some issues with margin in the, the safety business uh, with uh, supply chain impacts relating to some of their components, I think they said. Yeah, I mean, that did impact margins. And also, it seems to impact cash flow, because Halma historically has been very good at generating cash. But over the last year, particularly in the first half of the year, you saw things have a bit of a, a wobble. So it has this cash conversion target of 90%, which think it increased from 85% during the pandemic. And that ratio basically compares adjusted operating cash flow to adjusting adjusted operating profit. Um, but that seemed to have a bit of a dip in the first half of the year. So it fell to 63%. Um, and the full year figure came out at 78%. And I think that was because of these supply chain issues. So it was basically having to spend way more in, on inventory in the first half than it would have liked to um, because there were these supply chain problems and it still seems a little bit unclear whether they have been completely resolved because as you mentioned there was a return on sales figure in this safety section um had been impacted and they didn't seem to say that actually everything everything's all fine now mm. uh, i had a, a quick listen to some of the analysts call and potentially it could be fine because what they did you know a lot of these products in the medical well certainly in the safety world need to be certified and, and they ended up just having to recertify them with different components i think so perhaps they found uh, alternatives that can last them and certainly being supplied more regularly than the old ones the business itself, though, it, despite you know the, this long track record, it has gone through a bit of change on the management side recently, or quite a bit of change. A new team up top and, and some other departures as well. Yeah, so the big one is that the former, well, then chief executive Andrew Williams has now stepped down and he was at the helm for 18 years um, and obviously guided the company through quite a few tricky times and kept the, the momentum up. So I suppose it's waiting to see, to see if the new management team is as is as discerning and as strong. It's probably worth noting as well that obviously the company's grown so much in the last few years that it's a lot bigger than, say, during the last financial crisis. So it's possible that it will become a bit more unruly to manage. Um, and I think the fact that so much of the strategy is based on buying companies, it will be interesting to see how sort of the new interest rate environment plays out, really. Yeah, I mean, that was going to be my next question, really. You know, we, we've spoken before on this podcast about Halmer's buy and build strategy, can that still succeed in a high, much higher interest rate environment is the question. I mean, so far it seems to be. So in the last results, it said it had made seven acquisitions and two more have been completed since the period end. So it was still fueling a lot of money into into new companies. And on top of that, it's putting lots of money into research and development. So that was at record levels as well. So at the moment, it seems to be thinking about growth but I know um, some analysts that I spoke to last year were worried that actually there wouldn't be enough attractive companies out there to buy at an attractive enough price. So that could potentially put the brakes on on expansion going forwards. Yeah. You would assume, though, that, I mean, yeah, the, the R&D point 
makes sense. They, they certainly seem to invest a lot in the, in the business as well, which is always a, a positive sign for for a growing company. Um, but you'd assume the overall strategy would say this stay the same. I should say that the new chief exec was previously CFO, so it's not a not an entirely new broom coming in and uh, you know appending the tried and tested strategy. No, there seems to be plenty of of continuity, and it hasn't. They haven't come out saying you know we've we've radically altered our approach. I think it would just be a a case of testing the waters, see how how their debt's looking um, and seeing what opportunities are out there, really. Yeah. Well, as you say, one of those companies that doesn't get a huge amount of uh, uh, coverage from, certainly from mainstream climbs, but we will keep uh, monitoring it. And certainly as rates continue to climb, as they seem set to do so, we'll keep an eye on that strategy too. That does bring us to the end of today's show, though. So thank you very much to Gemma, to Arthur, to Julian and to Mark. And thank you to you for listening. We'll see you next time on another Companies and Markets show. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.